How might we lengthen the now in education to create a more equitable, sustainable, and life-affirming system of education? How might we envision education transformation when we take the long view and think in terms of centuries rather than in months and years, typical in most educational planning and visioning? These are just a few of the questions Andrea Savieri ponders in her daily work. She is our guest today on The Curiosity Files, the podcast that builds the capacity to ask meaningful questions in service to children. I'm Shell, and I'm the assistant head of school at the Levitt School in Atlanta. We started this podcast when our faculty was separated because of the outbreak of coronavirus. The goal was to continue to feed an intellectually hungry faculty and to find unique ways to gather as a community around topics that cultivated and sustained our core values. In the ensuing weeks, we have included friends from other schools in these conversations. Hi, I'm Kate Turnbull. I'm the Director of Professional Learning at Metairie Park Country Day School in Metairie, Louisiana. I'm Derek Krein, Dean of Professional and Programmatic Growth and Development at Tabor Academy. This is file number nine and I am going to get us started. Andrea Salvieri's experience spans 25 years, helping clients develop foresight, innovate, and prototype their futures. Her work with education clients has focused on creating forecasts of the disruptive shifts in teaching and learning, building resilient systems, and harnessing the power of technologies of cooperation. Andrea leads effective and dynamic opportunity mapping sessions and rapid prototyping workshops with organizations to help them discover and realize innovative solutions to strategic challenges. She's creatively collaborated with major research universities, community colleges, and K-12 schools to develop strategies and implement action for 21st century education. Most recently, in partnership with the KnowledgeWorks Foundation, Andrea created the 2020 Forecast, Creating the Future of Learning. She spent 21 years at Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, California, leading global research and forecasting projects in education, health, and the workplace. She's a graduate of both Harvard University and the University of California at Berkeley. She is (laughs) bi-coastal. My first experience with Andrea was at a conference in San Francisco where I was invited by the fabulous Howard Levin. That conference was entitled Redefining Readiness from the Inside Out. School leaders from across the country gathered to imagine the school of 2040. Andrea laid out forecasts about the world of work given advances and shifts in technology. She noted that work in the future would be market-driven and user-centered data and metrics driven, interwoven with learning, grounded in relating, modularized and recombined. From these patterns, she backwards designed the core competencies students would need to thrive in that world. Individual awareness, self-discovery and social awareness. Those core social and emotional skills led her to establish a set of fundamental cognitive and metacognitive practices that allow us to activate for future schooling. It's a diagram that I keep with me. As you look at her backwards design, we knew that students would need to thrive in ambiguity and uncertainty, communicate and create with numbers, learn anything, anywhere, cultivate inclusive communities, make friends with people and machines, take initiative and self-advocate, think differently, and solve problems. 
key to her work was building the humanness that is essential in our world ahead. She noted that adults need to be heroes and build a system that stimulates instead of stifles because education is not a winner-take-all tournament, but is about the opening of the imagination and developing competencies that are uniquely human and connective. Andrea, we give all of our guests a superhero name, and I have named you the forecaster. Also, if you decide you want to join like the WWE, that could be a good name for like a wrestler too. Um, because I see you read the tea leaves, you look for signals on the horizon, and you make meaning of patterns and trends in ways that allow us to minimize our anxiety about the future. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. That's, wow. What a, what a nice introduction. I, and I, I want to also thank everyone for joining today and just take a, a moment and acknowledge and appreciate the work that you've done in the last three and a half or four months, which seems like three or four years, you know, when I think back to February. I mean, wow, what a, uh, you know, hit the ground running. And I, I know you were all working around the clock 24 seven, I'm sure because of your students, your care and concern and, and commitment to them. When Meredith and I first worked together, she invited Andrea to come and talk to our board. <laughs> the board at the time, trying to do some generative work and beginning to frame a future strategic plan. And Andrea was, was really providing the sort of 25 year out, which is what a board is supposed to be planning for. And the other thing Andrea does is she uses a graphic recorder. So she brought this incredible graphic recorder with her. And I somewhere have an image of that particular recording. And I'm so curious to look back because I think in some ways time perhaps has moved even faster than we expected. I think I even have that too, if you can't find it. No, it, it is interesting to look back like that. And yeah. you're right. I mean, boards should be looking ahead like that. It'll also be interesting, Andrea, to have you reflect a little bit on how this post-mid-COVID flexibility and nimbleness that we've all had to adapt to, how that will impact our capacity. And, you know, when you said the three or four months feels like years, in many ways, we have accomplished in three and four months what pre-COVID would have taken us three to four years. I think you you just had a, a crash course in, immer, you know, immersive learning, kind of prototyping, experimenting, iterating. You had a clear goal, purpose, and came up with a vision of what is, what does success look like and what do we have to do to get there? You let the normal garbage that yeah. keeps us all like in our lanes, as Shell and I were talking about, was the disruptor that gave you all permission to do that. I would say permission and courage too. That's been a theme in this series that Shell has curated is sort of the vulnerability, the courage, the creativity. That's another reason why I think the kind of strategic foresight is really important because I've always tried to get bored to do that regularly because you're practicing your muscle and thinking beyond your immediate horizon, right? Beyond your three to five year strategic plan, going out into that zone of where, well, is this really plausible? Is this, it's like, it's okay if it's not plausible because 
if it's possible, it's worth practicing and thinking about what that means because then you know what to track. My colleague, Paul Sappho, always likes to say the future arrives in unexpected ways. How often, you know, have we talked about remote learning, work from home, school from home, online learning? That's not new, but you didn't think you were going to be doing it because of a pandemic. So the future arrived really fast and everybody kind of had to get on board. That's why I think strategic foresight is just essential for a board to regularly, you know, I try to get boards at least quarterly to engage in something, not just, oh, we want to kick off the year or, oh, we're starting to think about strategic planning and you think long and then it's like, okay, now let's just write our three-year plan or five-year plan. I think in a way that that's the silver lining of this COVID experiences, you've done it, you can do it. Now you can continue to do it and intentionally, and, and more importantly, mission aligned. Like this is a chance to really examine your assumptions and your purpose, and then really think out, not be driven by what happens, but to, to retain your mission and purpose. Yeah. About institute, the importance, importance of institutional values, but they're the ballast that you need so your boat doesn't flip over amidst stormy seas and needing to find new paths. Right, you, you may look very different but, and operate differently, but you, you may have the same purpose and the same values. But your vision is, of what success is, is gonna be, that can change. If that has been learned from this experience, I think that's a, a great and very important lesson. Andrea, we are so excited for you to kick off some big picture blue sky thinking with us and to help us work on those muscles. So I'm just going to let you take it away. I had a couple of goals for this webinar, what I wanted to accomplish. And one we've already started is to learn about how strategic foresight does create agility and confidence in the future and how that really should be a muscle that should be exercising more. The second goal is to talk a little bit about one of the big forces that is a disruptor in the future and to kind of the status quo, and that's smart machines accelerating technology change. And I'd like to demystify that a little bit so that you have more of a real practical working knowledge of it so that it, instead of it becoming a threat, it's more of an opportunity to design and create the kind of organization you want to deal with the future as it unfolds. And then finally, to explore in, in a rapid style format, explore ecosystems as a more flexible structure that can kind of create configurations of your school that might be more resilient and more exciting and provide a new way to think about how to configure your school that is aligned with your purpose, right, and your values. Just to start, you know, the context, and you, 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 we've just been talking about this, I mean, I think it's pretty clear now that we are operating in a VUCA world you know, our world's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And this actually is a term that started with the Army War College years ago, but I think it's really relevant now. And what does this really mean? I think the volatility is that there is kind of rapid change and unexpected change. The uncertainty comes from those known unknowns. You know, we, we just know there are things out there that are going to emerge, but we don't know what they are. The world is complex. The issues that we are immersed in, like COVID, 
there are multiple decision factors. There's layers of issues. There are interconnected issues. In dealing with COVID, it's not just online learning, but what is home life like for kids? Do they, you know, they are coming to school for food. I mean, it's not just about delivering instruction. It, all of a sudden you're interconnected with all sorts of issues and challenges. And it's ambiguous in that we are not, there's not clarity around the meaning of certain events or certain cause and effect. Like, well, what happens if we send everyone home? Like Shell was saying that the kind of turbulence created in a VUCA world, it's, it's negative and positive. It doesn't always have to be negative, but it's very disruptive and it's really causes anxiety, right? It challenges our assumptions about what we're doing, what our purpose is, our, do we have the right values? It creates doubt in what we hold to be true. I think if you just look back in the you know, last 10 to 15 years, when we think about tech change, globalization, hyper-connectivity, both of markets and socially with social media and culture, right? That connectivity is, is really intense. And climate change, I mean, those forces, we know that VUCA is the norm. What VUCA does is it kind of reveals the rigidities of our systems and our institutions. And I think that's where strategic foresight comes in, is that it's a really good tool to think beyond the immediate horizons. Dealing with COVID, first it was, how do we get to the end of the year? And then it's, how do we open in the fall and what's next year look like? But what about the year after that? What about the year after that? What about five years? What about 10 years? We're still going to be in a VUCA world. There will be another disruptor. And so it's not like once you solve this, you're, you're back to the world before, but now we have some hybrid learning going on. A strategic site that it is about kind of mapping the cone of uncertainty. And in doing so, I think helps reduce some of the anxiety and kind of create some more confidence about the future, or at least comfort, you know, gets rid of some of the dis discomfort around, well, what could things be like? And I think it also helps to get over this kind of assumption of continuity. If you see that, you know, we're in the present and typically, and I've seen this at many, many schools is someone's called in to do some strategic planning and there's a three to five year horizon and their ideas about doing kind of bold initiatives. And yet there's really is an assumption that the world is gonna continue just as it is. Kids are learning in their seats that, you know, assessment is the way it is, that college is the goal, that work is more or less the same. All our kids are gonna be in the profession, so all, all this disruptive stuff doesn't matter. And that assumption of continuity is really powerful. And so you get this official story of the future, you get incremental innovation that kind of sustains the structures that you're in, which I think limits your kind of flexibility and agility. And I know you had Mark talking earlier about agility being something really important in, in this world. And I think strategic foresight helps give you that. It expands your view of what's possible when you look at kind of big drivers of change and ask what if and start to combine drivers and imagine different consequences and different plausible futures and play out what are the possibilities in those futures and what could they mean? And then how does that align with who we say we are and what our purpose is? Then what does success look like in that future if, if we're holding to that mission? 
well, it might look very different than from what we're doing. We might have to give up some things that we hold dear to us now, but if we really want to deliver on that mission 10 or 15 years from now, we have to think more critically. One of the questions here that I think big challenges, assumption that gets challenged is, are you a school or do you have a school? When you start to think about that, about what's possible in the future, all sorts of new opportunities start to emerge that, that are still can be very mission aligned and aligned with your values. And I think those are the kind of questions and kind of plausible possibility that you can really explore in doing strategic foresight and start tracking really interesting kind of changes and trends. And well, if this happens, we could you know, do this over here by constantly thinking that way I think you're ready and you're prepared and you can actually have more agency in, in your future than being reactive and have the three and a half months like you just did. Instead, it's a process of intentional creation, organization building. Andrea, I just want to just pull on this thread a little bit. Are you a school or do you have a school? Right. Well, I would be asking you as a school community, you as a leader, who are you? And I think it's not that existential a question, but I think because of the, the grammar of it, you kind of stop and say, well, what are we? When we say we're a school, what does that mean? And if we have a school, that means we might have other things. And are those other things that we have also supporting our mission? And if we think that way, are there opportunities and possibilities that we might explore that could help us expand our, our mission to other, you know, reach other markets or create experiences that we couldn't have created to serve our mission. That just thinking about, well, we're a school, because I think there are certain assumptions about what a school is. One of the things I love about that question, Andrea, is that it really forces you to think about an ecosystem right. rather than your school as a physical place right? But it, it's about this ecosystem. So I really appreciate that. And as we'll see later, then you start to think about roles and interconnections and relationships and hubs and kind of niches and value and fluidity, not something that's static. One of the things I want to share with you now is just this idea of smart machines, what some people call the robot apocalypse, right? I mean, the talk about automation and accelerating digital technologies. I mean, that is definitely a driver that's shaping all our futures, schools and all organizations. When you mention it, most people think of something like this, that it's um, the robot apocalypse. Everything is going to be automated. There are going to be no more jobs except for, you know, the 1%. Actually, too, this is an aside, I'm reading Gish Jen's book, The Resistors. It's so great. You all have to read it because it talks about this and imagines a world where there has been a lot of automation and it's from the high school girl perspective. And I won't say any more, but I think you'll all really like it. I think that we get distracted by this story of the robot overlords and you know automation ending everything as we know it. There's an, another narrative that is more creative, it's, is about accelerating digital technologies and automation as a new toolkit, a new palette to create new ways of organizing. 
you know, new ways of organizing people and resources and, and teaching and learning. Some people call the, smart the rise of smart machines the fourth industrial revolution. Basically, the message I want to convey here is that smart machines are really the combination of three tech trends, massive data gathering and computation with algorithms and analytics, which is basically instructions and rules that make sense of all that data. And then machine learning, which is systems that learn from the data so that they can make decisions and get better. And so it's basically information, rules, and experience. And that's kind of the way we learn. These machines now are learning that way too. And we've all used smart machines. We've, if you've used Google's real-time translation or Siri, or have seen you know, the, in your iPhone the transcription of your voicemail, if you've used Waze or any kind of traffic navigation or optimization, you know, all of that is are, are using these, these three technologies. And the important thing to, to know is that as these smart machines, so the application software devices and platforms, as they get faster and cheaper, they're shifting from doing just routine cognitive work like you know making a reservation at an airbnb you know booking booking dinner reservations to doing more complex non-routine cognitive work like driving a car doing legal research designing a new drug doing financial analysis they're doing the kinds of cognitive tasks that's often associated with white collar professions and knowledge work. And so they're also changing how we can configure work then with people and machines and kind of create new organizations, create new environments for learning and working. What I wanna do is talk about kind of the three functions or attributes that result with, from these, these technologies. How does it really enable change? What, what do smart machines really do? Well, first they can automate. Known and repetitive tasks can be codified in software. Something like a chatbot, which you've all dealt with is a good example. GitHub is a software coding repository and community for, for creating and sharing software. Well, what they're working on now is actually how to automate that so that software design will be automated and almost like a drag and drop type menu process. Smart contracts is another example. If you think of the routine, known, repetitive contracts like escrow payments or wills or insurance company claims, kind of dispersing of, of claims money. Those kinds of instructions and rules are getting coded. And just to give you an example of a smart will, when a death is registered, and if there's a smart will, that registration of a death triggers the smart will to start dispersing funds and assets according to the instructions in the will. Just an example of what is routine and repetitive and kind of transactional exchanges that it might be better to have a machine do it, right? Well, should people be, be spending their time doing those kinds of activities? The second attribute of smart machines in that is that they taskify. So they can take kind of discrete and predictable tasks and coordinate them. And this is really done for efficiency. So Uber is, is the classic example here of kind of distributing providers of, of a service with people who want that service 
can be applied to lots of different industries. But this is also happening now in knowledge work. So Upwork is a platform where knowledge work who do anything from design, software design, financial work, legal work, you, you name it, management types of positions can register on the platform. And what Upwork does is it helps someone who's looking for talent write a task description, get the best match from the talent cloud, do the initial vetting, do interview support, and even help do project management. And then Rethinkery, the third example, takes that a step further. It's also kind of a global freelancing platform. They actually go a step further and use automated management bots to help manage this distributed team of knowledge workers to do what they call cognitive collaboration. And Devin Fiddler, who's the CEO of Rethinkery, he calls tools like this, this kind of talent cloud platform with this kind of machine-assisted management of the work, organizational power tool. Anyone could kind of create an organization that says, okay, I want to, I want to fight hunger or I want to have an emergency response for this situation. The software will help you expose and reveal and recruit the kind of talent you might need and help coordinate it. Now, it's not something that would be just let on its own. There's still people in here. And I, I think that term of organizational power tools is really um, effective and kind of interesting here. And the last element, what smart machines do, do is they augment. They help support the unique human strengths like decision-making and creativity and relating with other people and kind of using our intuition and our persuasion and and our emotional intelligence. And these are, are tools that are there to really kind of promote and support what's uniquely human. This is important for those tasks that are very complex and ambiguous. And so an example of Magic Leap, which is an augmented reality design tool, basically, and Nike actually uses it. And they have designers all over the world who are actually working on the same shoe and designing it collaboratively using this augmented reality kind of platform. So the tool is, is really augmenting their collaboration and creativity across the world. Now, you know, imagine high schoolers collaborating with students around the world on, you name it, migration, food production, any of the big challenges that they're, they're moving into those challenges in the world, getting the experience to collaborate with people in this way. I think could be really, really exciting. IBM Watson is, is another kind of big deep learning artificial intelligence decision support tool that uses that, remember I said that the massive kind of data gathering and data mining with algorithms and sense making, they're doing this in professional vertical segments like health. They have an oncology expert advisor and the system just integrates and analyzes tons and tons of longitudinal patient data, lab data, research data, clinical trial data, the rapid change of data and information in, in the health field, especially in, with clinical trials and new drugs and new treatments, just impossible for a human to, to keep up with all of that. IBM Watson, this oncology expert advisor is used to kind of help support the creativity and sense-making and decision-making and what if, let's try this kind of thinking of the humans. 
but they can leverage all that processing of the deep learning of the AI. My favorite example is the AI-driven art. Seattle-based artist Maja Petrick uses artificial intelligence to gather all sorts of information and data on the internet about climate change. She has a series called Lost Skies that shows climate change from the perspective of climate pessimists and climate optimists and different conditions. And she does it to help deepen our understanding of the climate issues and kind of have people consider climate issues from an art perspective and in a way that I think taps into other ways that we think and create and imagine, augmenting what we uniquely do. What's important is that the combination of these three functions of smart machines, automating, taskifying, and augmenting, is really creating a new, a new set of tools for us to match humans and machines and create new kinds of organizational forms and new kinds of experiences. It begs us to ask the question then, what is the most important thing for the machines to be doing? And what's the most important thing for the humans to be doing? How can we situate people in a technology rich and human kind of relationally rich environment where humans can really do what only they can do? That's the, the power and the kind of creative narrative of smart machines that we need to keep in mind. It's not just gonna you know, take away all our jobs. There is gonna be displacement, but there's also gonna be new ways that we work and partner with machines. You know, the question then is, what should be in the white zone and be automated? Do you want people who are creative and relational and have, you know, can use their emotions to be doing that kind of work? And likewise with taskification, are there, professionals and expertise and kind of knowledge resources that you might be able to access if you, you know, were to use those kinds of tools and platforms. And then in the red zone, you know, how can we leverage kind of the complex human interactions, use technology to help us kind of leverage those interactions, student to student with adults, peers, teachers, community members. This shows the landscape of how we might create new kinds of ecosystems and how we might think, are we a school or do we have a school? You know, where is school in here? What could be automated in our school or what could be automated that expands our school into an ecosystem? And likewise with taskification or, or augmentation. How can you optimize human and machine contributions to really create distinctive experiences for students and for teachers and for the community? And what should the people in your learning communities be doing? You know, and are they doing things that maybe it's better if a machine does it? Another interesting thing in thinking about taskification and talent clouds is the idea of what an educational career looks like starts to change as work is becoming more fluid and contingent and contract-based and dynamic. How could that be an asset that could enable you to have a new kind of set of relationships with expertise and professionals and practitioners. Again, I think that this enables kind of educational ecosystems where 
different kinds of functions and experiences and activities can become unbundled and hybridized. We already are seeing new branded types of credentialing and experiences and more modular, flexible, and customizable formats for learning. And in this context, learner agency and self-efficacy are going to be critical. If there's more options and more unbundled learning experiences available. And then also, I think that in, in this world, if we're really focusing on what machines do best, what humans do best, that education can really be human-centered. Just because there's going to be the choice to implement technology doesn't mean it can't be human-centered. In fact, it could even be more human-centered. How do we need to rethink the ways we're preparing students for a world filled with automation and augmentation? That's the whole other conversation and absolutely right. The new framework for readiness, self-discovery, individual awareness, and social awareness, those do become very important. That's why that report is called readiness from the inside out is so important because the world of work, what I'm proposing here is that Schools can use this kind of platform and these kinds of technologies to create new working and learning environments, but every other industry and organization is doing the same thing. So work and careers are completely transforming. And that's what the January meeting workshop was that Shell participated in that she mentioned this suggests a new set of assumptions for what readiness is and how I think to prioritize skills and competencies. I love the way that you're thinking. And I wonder if diving into some of your provocations really brings some of that to life. So when we think about these smart machines and their affordances of automating and taskifying and augmentation, and we start to imagine what's possible and what's plausible on say a 10 year horizon, we, in some work that I did with KnowledgeWorks Foundation, we created a bunch of, of provocations that said, well, what if this were possible? And as you listen to these, consider the kinds of attributes and, and concepts and qualities that resonate with you. What kind of words resonate with you and with maybe the mission of your school? And don't think of these as like, oh, the future, this is going to happen. But these are ideas that are meant to spark your ideas of what's possible too. So imagine what if we had educator swarms in which every child had a learning pit crew of caring adults and people, personal digital partners that responded to immediate needs and optimized for long-term success. What if every teacher could call a professional learning huddle that provided on-demand peer support and coaching and professional learning opportunities, both in person and in mixed reality settings? So you had an issue, and what if you could just get this professional learning huddle on demand? Imagine the kind of learning communities and professional development and relationships that would be possible. Or what if we had custom learning contracts where every student had a smart learning pass that unlocked high quality, vetted, and performance level appropriate learning opportunities locally and globally. This past just unlocked a world of learning and challenge for each student. Students and alumni had an interactive lifetime learning portfolio, right, that used the, those tools to kind of aggregate academic milestones and career ex experiences 
prompted reflections and suggested possible learning journeys or mentors or relationships and career pathways. Th this is possible with the technology we have. Now, I think one of the things we're short on in our students, and I, I have a 15 and 19 year old, is that time for reflection and looking back. What have I done? What does it mean? And what does it mean next? The first time they do that is when they're freaked out as juniors and they have to start writing college applications. What if this was something that was prompted along the way? You just got one and it grew with you. Or what if we had smart learning environment where students could uncover and create their own educational graffiti by using simple augmented reality applications? So think Pokemon Go. And they could layer digital content and media and learning experiences across their school or their community landscape. Imagine communities now, you know, high schoolers, middle schoolers, you know, interviewing people about the impacts of COVID or where they used to work or local histories and embedding them in their own community, starting to give them voice and expose the voices in their own community that other people could actually uh, read and, and listen to as they move through their neighborhood. Or mixed reality learning parks, that use virtual reality and augmented reality to provide students and educators embodied and immersive and highly contextualized learning experiences that help them cultivate empathy and engage in complex issues. What's interesting is some of the research and some of the virtual reality tools is showing that some of the anti-bias and kind of empathy work that they're doing where you actually in VR literally be in someone else's shoes, that there are lasting impact, kind of anti-bias impacts after an experience like that, because you've actually really have been in the shoes of somebody else. What if we had artisanal education, where education ateliers became hubs of signature curriculum and beautiful education design and learning innovation and professional growth. What if we had ateliers for signature curriculum? You know, what, what could that mean? What, what could it look like? Or if we had student clusters rotate through embedded micro schools and had hosts like museums and nature centers and art galleries and science centers and that kind of expanded their sense of purpose and mastery and possibility. An interesting thing now, which you probably have in your neighborhoods, is there are the signs out in front of the houses of, of kids who've graduated. When you take a walk in your neighborhood and all of a sudden like, oh, there's a graduate, there's a graduate. There. It's like you never knew that these learners, these young minds were embedded in your own neighborhood. Well, what if you had, you know, little micro schools that literally were embedded in the, in the geography around you? You know, what that would do for learning and growth, not only of learners, but of the community. Or what if we educated for impact and schools could visually communicate their social impact footprint and kind of motivate student learning and catalyze partnerships and more cooperative engagement and could attract creative funding because you could kind of collectively see what your social impact footprint was and share that with other people and kind of invite them in and engage them to collaborate with you. Or if students developed impact networks that demonstrated kind of their engagement with community members 
and real world problems that they engage in. So they kind of have their own network of resources and people that help show their reach. Power in the world and this network can shows me my power in the world. And what if we had self-organizing school? This is my favorite one. Where (laughs) we had pop-up schools that provided micro learning experiences that draws inspiration and insight from local cultural assets and current events and temporary exhibits and offered thematic and focused curriculum. Learning just popped up in places and attracted learners, maybe adult as well as young from across the community. And again, learning became, really becomes a community asset. Or if algorithms and self-executing agreements, right, think smart contracts, helped manage resources and relationships across various partners that helped kind of reshape your school as an interconnected and fluid learning ecosystem. So all those field trips after school and employers and internships, I mean, what if you really could use self-executing agreements or at least smarter transactional tools to make this a more seamless and fluid environment? Again, are you a school or do you have a school? You know, what's possible for what you can offer? A few questions here for you to think about. You know, these provocations were meant to prompt you into thinking what a resilient ecosystem might look like. How do the the attributes, maybe some of what resonated for you, kind of contribute to more agility for your school? How can you leverage your current ecosystem? You know, you probably already have a little ecosystem. How can you leverage it and expand it? What are the new strategies and partnerships and programs and services that might help you kind of leverage and expand that ecosystem and and become kind of a more resilient teaching and learning environment? You know, it's so interesting because schools don't often think of themselves as ecosystems. And what happens in a kindergarten classroom truly does impact what happens in a 12th grade classroom, but we're not in the habit of thinking of ourselves as an ecosystem. So your question, what might a resilient ecosystem look like, is a really, really powerful one. The other thing too is, I mean, think about what we've just been through. Kids have had to stay home. They've had to stay in their local bubble, their local geography. And the idea about being resilient, ecosystems being resilient, is at times parts of an ecosystem may be threatened. Some of it may die. Some of it may wither. Other parts might become stronger. New connections might form. So if you start thinking about yourself like this and kind of tracking the opportunities that can start to build the infrastructure, when something like a COVID happens, you're like, oh, well, we already do this. The kids do this in their neighborhood. What if we activated it now for this purpose? You know, that's where the the resilience, I think, comes in. Resilience is adapting in a way that allows you to keep to your mission and purpose, but you're, you know, changing relationships to create something new and and maybe let some things go, right? Sometimes things die in an ecosystem. So I think it is a useful metaphor to really rethink in this day and age, given a VUCA world, given the kinds of missions that we all have in our schools about equity and diversity and and creating really, I mean, life-affirming organizations for, for teachers and students and families, that I think it's a very fruitful 
kind of metaphor. Absolutely. One thing that I think is really hard and I took away from our time that we had in San Francisco was you really pushed us to get out of an educational model that we have all been living out for hundreds of years. Why is thinking about the future so hard? There's comfort in what we know. We are wired to fear the unknown. That's what those emotions do. Doubt, mistrust, fear, anger. Do you approach or do you step back? And that's why, like Howard, you brought up skills. That's why inside out readiness is so important because emotions are information and we need to pay attention to why, to read those in ourselves and in others and say, why are we having these emotions? What's it coming from? And is it detracting from my objective, my purpose, my goal? And if so, how do I regulate and manage and get myself to a different emotional state, right? And strategic foresight, I think, helps do that, is that it gets you out of the limbic to say, well, I can be intentional and creative in thinking about the future and map that uncertainty. And that's one answer. The other answer is I think as you know, independent schools do have you know, legacy and lots of history and there's been a lot of constancy. And so I think moving away from that, it is hard. But I think that the kind of education that you can do with parents and board members and the community about what the future is gonna be like and that it doesn't have to be scary, that there are all these opportunities to really address, it, are we really going to look the same 25 years from now and, and be able to realize our purpose? The answer is no. You won't be able to do that, especially if you're on a tuition times enrollment business model. That's the other part of this ecosystem work. I see it as the gateway to what are different kinds of business models. Can you create a more diverse kind of set of business models? If you are a school or if you have a school and you have other things, you know, your revenue and your business models start to diversify that you can start to reach into other markets and I think deliver on your purpose in different ways. And I think that's what's so exciting is that there are possibilities to get out of that challenge. And that's a challenge that all independent schools have. One thing I know Meredith and I have talked quite a lot about since COVID hit our world spoke directly to that ecosystem piece. And so schools, independent schools in particular, are serving a role more than just school. School becomes your neighborhood. Looking to the school for the same kind of guidance that lots of people perhaps once got from a religious institution or from other kinds of community groups and looking at the role and the human need that schools, schools are playing. And so your frame of an ecosystem becomes a really, really helpful one as we're thinking through how to best serve, serve our community as, as a neighborhood. That's a really great point because I also think it's how do you build an ecosystem where maybe you're not doing some things and there's other people in your ecosystem who should be doing. I also work in the public education world with KnowledgeWorks. And I mean, that's a really big question for them. It's all schools, public and private and parochial, every social challenge gets dumped on schools, right? I think schools need to change and some of what they consider out success, success outcomes and what they should be doing. Should schools be feeding kids? Should schools be providing clothing? Our, our 
public high school, that was the first thing when COVID hit was get kids the food. It wasn't about what or how are we going to get them APs, right? And then it was get them Chromebooks. Then it was what's our curriculum. Again, it's what is your purpose? What's your mission and your values? And how do you create partnerships and relationships in an ecosystem model where you're doing what you want, but you can also activate the relationships to get other players in a community to do what maybe they can do better. And for each school, that's going to look different. Howard, Howard added to the chat this need to be thinking two to three years, ahead, not just two to three years ahead, but 10 to 25 years ahead and doing backwards design from there. And th therein lies the really scary part in schools and, and figuring out how to do that and do that well. I look at some of the scenarios that you thought of that I, I would never have thought of those things. And so really breaking out of that model is hard. Yeah, no, it, it is. And I think that's why dedicating time to do it, taking the pressure off. My favorite work is with schools where they're not calling me in to like, okay, we need to do a strategic plan. You just say that word and all the creativity just goes right out the door because it's like, we need, we need the three, what are the three priorities? And it's like, okay, I can tell them to you right now. We don't need to do the work. It is important to have strategic priorities. But I think informed by a longer vision. And there can be near-term priorities, but I think near-term priorities with an eye towards monitoring the horizon. I mean, that's what strategic foresight is. It's not necessarily planning, although it does support planning, but it's saying, okay, after this strategic plan, then what next? Then what next? And what's happening? And is there a way that we can reconceive who we are and what we do to address our mission, thinking down the road, knowing that we're still in a VUCA world, there's going to be a lot of technology, there's going to be a lot of income polarization, there's going to be a completely different work and career landscape, there's going to be uneven infrastructures across the country. As Howard said, you know, what's the framework for skills? And I think that's where the framework for readiness comes in. But then it's, and how do we deliver on that? That's where the ecosystem comes in. And financially, is it still a tuition times N and they're all showing up at the same place to the same campus? The other thing about that makes the future stuff easier, the further out you go, is then people are like, oh, well, 10, 15 years, 20 years, oh, sure. We're all over the community by then. We're on every street corner, you know? And it's like, all right, well, let's play with that for a while. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, there's a little kernel in there, which is pretty interesting. So by going past, I would say, a couple of strategic planning horizons, you get people to like let go a little bit. And I think that's where real creative work can, can be done. And that is where strategic foresight is, right? It's foresight, but it's strategic so you can pull the thread back to today and start to say, well, we'll have our near-term goals and priorities, but we're gonna pilot these two extra things that we think are interesting and see where it takes us and what we learn. I can tell you that I'm still wondering where my jet pack is as a child of the 70s yeah. watching the Jetsons. I'm like, you've gotta be kidding me, where's my jet pack? So we're yeah. gonna definitely have jet packs in my future schools. Right, that's right. We can, we can do that show. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate the conversation today and um, we look forward to talking more for sure. That, that's terrific. Thank you so much, Andrea.
Oh, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you, awesome. everybody. Bye. Nice to see you all.